Hello, hello, and welcome to the Layers of Design and Life podcast with me, Emma Mary Styling. So we decided to create a podcast based on the questions we've been asked on Instagram for the past, oh, I don't know, three years. Um, lots of the same questions come up and we thought it'd be nice to have more of a long form conversation than a short snippets that Instagram allows you to do. Okay, so... The first one has been asked the most, which is, what is your starting point for a design? When you're looking at a blank space, where do you jump off from? (laughs) (laughs) So physically, we have our starting point is a mood board, which works around each individual fabric or material. And then we layer up each of these materials based on the aesthetic that we're trying to create. So if we're looking for something that's quite luxe, then we'll use lots of fabrics that tactile and feel quite luxe, but also aesthetically look quite luxe. However, we do always take into account when we're putting together these initial mood boards, the quality of the product, the price point and how they're going to be used ultimately. For example, you know, if you've got a very young family, you don't want a boucle sofa with sticky fingers all over it. But lots of our clients will come to us with something that they've seen in a magazine or usually a Pinterest image of an American room. And we run through that process with them as well. So, okay, what is it you like about this? Because you've got a very small living room and the picture that you've shown us is the equivalent of a barn. (laughs) You've got three sofas in there, occasional chairs. And nine times out of 10, it will be they just love the cushion or they love the color of the piping that's on the actual sofa. So from that work, it transpires that they like that particular texture and that's our starting point for the mood board. So how do you draw out from the client what it is they actually want from a room when you first go to meet them? A conversation, really, if, I, if I'm honest. I think it is just a good old chat. Um, I'm interested in their life and how they're going to use the space. I'm not there to sell a particular wallpaper, a particular fabric. What I'm there to sell is their dream home I want them to reach the end of the project and feel like this ticks all the boxes aesthetically functionally and it's genuinely a happy home I think that's really interesting because a lot of people might be thinking that you come to a design with a particular paint color in mind and that's where you start from building things around gosh no I mean nine times out of ten if I'm honest the paint color is one of the last things to be decided I actually find it quite limiting when clients say oh I love Farrell and Bore have to have satin slipper it's the only color I really feel safe with I actually take that as a bit of a (laughs) challenge so yeah challenge me if you dare Um, nothing against Farrell and Bore satin slipper but it's very safe so I always give them a safe option and then a halfway house and then a wild card Uh, and nine times out of ten they'll take the wild card and it will be beautiful because we've built that trust in the relationship going forward and we're able to build a beautiful, beautiful room together. And how restrictive is it if a client comes to you with one particular thing that is non-negotiable that they need to keep within the design scheme? People saying, I need to keep this sofa, this chair, this light. How does that work? Yeah. So again, I have quite a lot of um, generational pieces. So clients where um, they've got grandparents that have had u- usually sideboards that they've inherited. Because traditionally what's ha- what happens is you know, your parents will have inherited the sideboard. Let's use the sideboard as the analogy from your grandparents who have then downsized into a smaller home. 
usually by the seaside, <laughs> and then your parents are then downsizing into their smaller home, so it comes your way. And it's not necessarily to their taste. I think that's the problem. It's usually, for example, very, very dark wood. You know, the handles are not of a metal finish that is of this time. Um, so what we do is we work to bring it into this co- into context with the design that we're going to create, but also make it a fundamental part of their life. So if, for example, we're planning a kitchen, we will build this dresser in to be used every single day for storage, for the knives and forks, the crockery, the cutlery, and we will up-level it, which I've actually done in my own house. I have a generational piece. And we've added a beautiful marble top to it, and it's pride of place in the dining room. By adding the stone top to it, it brought it in line with the kitchen, um, visual visually and aesthetically so the surfaces felt the same they looked the same so we made it more of a contemporary piece and every time we look at it we think of you know the various different homes that it's been in and the times we look back and where yeah what it means you know like kids parties christmases it's all been part of i mean it, it it's full of junk in one, <laughs> one respect but yeah so going back to the original question I actually like it when, you know, those kind of elements are to be included. And I think that's what makes a home, isn't it? Memories. So and those... it's not restricted. It's actually something that's part of the story of the space you're trying to create. Agreed. However, I am going to caveat, <laughs> <laughs> a caveat quite heavily. The piece has to be of quality. I do have clients that want to keep, you know, an Ikea, again, there's nothing wrong with Ikea, but an Ikea sofa, purely because that's the dog sofa. So let's look at what the dog needs and let's look at designing something especially for him because it's a very important part of the home. I'm getting the big thumbs up over there from Karen. She's a dog lover. So yeah, I think it's assessing the value of the piece and where to keep it and knowing from the start that it's worth, you know, worth keeping. Okay. So when you're going through that process, um, you're looking at, you've met with the clients They've told you they're non-negotiables. They've told you what they're looking to aim for. And you get really stuck into the process. What's the favourite part of that for you? Is it when you're leafing through samples? Is it actually meeting the clients in their home? Is it knocking down the walls? (laughs) (laughs) Love that. It's it's the demolition. (laughs) Yeah, getting all those dressed out. (laughs) I have been known to remove a wall here or there. Um, what's my favourite part? Do you know my favourite part is the percolating? So every time we leave a... <laughs> <laughs> designing or making coffee. <laughs> every time we leave a project, it's still... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> she thinks it's hilarious. <laughs> okay. Every time we leave a project, it sticks in my head until... I figure out a solution. So, for example, we do a lot of bathrooms and kitchens, um, which is a little bit like a jigsaw puzzle. So in my head, I'll run through the 200-odd combinations of where everything can go and be kind of distracted until it clicks. And that's why I, you know, there's so many programs out there at the moment about interior design on Netflix and these kind of things, and people are rushing designs out within a matter of, like, days I just, for me, I can't understand how it can be done that quickly. I think it's a process and I think design is a process. And that's why we've obviously called the podcast the layers of design because it is layers. You have to build on your initial idea and then you build again and again and again. And that's when you present it to the client. They will give you another input. So then 
again, one of the building blocks comes out of that scenario until you get the final piece. Um, that's why I think e-design is really hard because you can't have 20 minute conversation and then churn out a design an hour later. But we're talking about family homes for long lasting design that is not based around trends really it's based around what the client knows and loves so your favorite part is the click (laughs) yeah I think it is the click and then presenting to the client that's my favorite bit because I love it when I do we do a lot of zooms for the initial presentation because it's quicker and it helps people sort of see the ideas on the screen and when you can see their faces visually lighting up and then I sort of say to them at the end of the session oh what do you think um (laughs) and they sort of come back with it's not what I thought it was going to be, but I absolutely love it. You've literally gone in a completely different direction aesthetically to ha- something that I could never, ever even possibly imagine. Uh, but it's perfect. It's me all over. So, and yeah. That, that was going to be one of the questions. How do you feel when presenting the design? Is it is it exciting like you just described? It must feel like bearing your soul a little bit because you put all of your hard work into it. What does that feel like for you as a designer presenting it to be critiqued by your client? Uh, does it feel a bit like you're bearing your soul? Because yeah. It's, all, it's your personal taste that you put into this. Obviously, you take what they like into account, but people hire you because they like your style, your taste and your vision. Yes. Yeah, exactly that. And also, I think it's it's almost like, have I understood what you're saying correctly and what you need? And are you willing to trust me and go on this journey together and I think interior design can be misconstrued. There's loads of programs about yeah. interior design. There's social media, which is quite heavily based around interior design. And everything's about how things look. For me, it's not about how things look. It's about how things feel. It needs to look beautiful, but more importantly, it needs to feel like there's been love put into it and, and that right it's been curated mm-hmm. and that it's right for them. And that's why you can't recycle designs you know I couldn't sell your living room to another client because it's not it's not what you would want you know it's it's bespoke it's hook couture darling (laughs) have you ever had an experience where you presented design and the feedback was not what you wanted yes and they're actually quite fun to do as well because it's almost like okay let's break down what you didn't like and again I never take it as what you do and you don't like it's like what's not sitting right with you I had a client who just didn't like the cushions so again whilst it's on the screen I can remove the cushions switch those out and they're like oh, actually yeah that's bringing it to life it's changed the whole concept for them. exactly it's changed it and it's like a completely different room design just by switching cushions well I think people often struggle to see past things that they don't like to see the rest of the scheme yeah I agree so you really specialize in bathrooms don't you why is that yes uh, I don't know really. I like a bathroom. I... And I know it's because you love tiles. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? We're sitting here and before we started, Karen said to me, that unit looks like it's going to collapse. It's got so many tiles pardoned of it. And I said, I've just had a sort out. These are my best selections. I do love tiles, but the thing I like about tiles is I think you can change a whole space and I love using combinations that you would never have thought of and that's one of the biggest forms of feedback I get about the bathrooms that we design I never would have chosen those so I think it's about the clashing patterns and just looking beyond the single pattern and looking at how this works in the bigger picture how they speak to each other along with the sanitary wear and the placement 
and I sound very designery now, but I think in a bathroom, because the sanitary wear is so standard, the tiles have to do the talking and they don't have to be leery patterns. We've got beautiful natural stone with veining and then you put trims on that or you look at using it in a different formation to the way that's been suggested. I think it can elevate the space in multiple different ways. Also, I think bathrooms are quite scary. You can easily do it wrong and they're not cheap. The installation is as much as the product. And for example, you put a tap in, I say this to clients all the time, you decide that you don't have the budget to buy the high-end tap or the mid-range tap, so you buy a better value tap. After one year, that breaks. It's not the same as just replacing a cushion cover or a table leg. You have to take the whole section of wall out, remove all of the mechanics of that tap, and then replace it. A wall-mounted tap. tap, Sorry, yeah. The mechanics of that, and then re, you know, retile it all, regrout it all. So it's everything you do is a double cost. And again, I'm really passionate about making sure people have bathrooms that are going to be beautiful for the next 15 years. The stats are in their in your lifetime, most people will do two bathrooms, one kitchen, because it's that stressful. (laughs) So yeah, that's that's you know, those are the stats around it. So going back to your love of tiles where does that come from where did, i never met somebody who's obsessed with tiles where did you get that influence from i think it's from my time living in spain we went over there on a bit of a whim really we lived down in marbella for four or five years and it was the best and worst time of my life the best time because the inspiration and the exposure i got to different cultures different people you know most of my friends were europeans but yeah lots of different sort of cultures and the fact that everything over there is tile based you don't really get carpets there's not really many wood floors and there's a huge moorish influence and that's what really drew me I was like oh my god I love this I just I felt like I'd come home I think it's the shapes you know sort of like the scallops and the patterns and the textures and just the way they use things completely differently you know the designs that they'll use in a patio garden is something that you'd never see here. It's very flamboyant, like the Spanish. When they talk, they're very passionate. My husband always jokes when we go to Spain, it's like, they're so loud on the beach, it's like they're having an argument. And it would just be two mates just chatting, probably talking about what's happening at, at work, but they're very, very passionate. And that transpires, I think, into their ceramics. The patterns are very bold, the colours are very deep. And coming from grey, very simple England, it just ignited something in me. And when we moved back, I was very passionate about bringing that here because I thought not everybody wants simple and plain. There's a place for that. But I think we mix it very well. So obviously you're a very renowned interior designer right now. But if you weren't, what would you be? Oh, what would I be? Well, I want to say a swimming teacher. (laughs) But I said that to Karen earlier when she was running through the question. She said, Oh, I'm interested to know what would you be as a swimming teacher? She went, No, you wouldn't. You would want to get your hair wet. I was like, I can't see you. <laughs> Maybe for the uh, tiles in the pool, if you're interested. <laughs> <laughs> she's good. She's got me there. I think, again, something with people, nothing in the medical world. I am not great with anything along those lines. I've always wanted to be able to paint and to draw. If I had that as a natural talent, something creative, like amazing creative people out there that create beautiful fabric, surface pattern printing people that make beautiful tiles. So I think 
probably an artisan. Should we say an artisan? Yes. He wants to know if they are an aspiring interior designer. I think there's quite a few out there. You've seen all of the television, reality TV shows. Many people would love to have your job. What advice would you give for somebody who wants to become an interior designer? I, my job is not about talking. It's about listening. I am here to listen to the client, to listen to the manufacturers, to listen to the trades. And so I'd say the most experience you can get with dealing with the general public, with dealing with people and listening and then translating that into the design world, play with fabrics, play with materials and find your niche. And your niche will be something that you hadn't really even conceived. It, listen to what you want to do. And in terms of you listen to your inner voice, like for me with tiles, I was like, oh, I love tiles. That's that's quite random. How am I going to, you know, turn this into my passion? And then bathrooms has come out of that and then it moves forward. And if your passion is fabrics, then it might be you go down the road of becoming a specialist in blinds and curtains, or you might become a specialist in, you know, flooring designs in terms of timber floors or, you know, architectural windows. That's your USP. Don't feel embarrassed about what those things are. Embrace it because everybody wants a specialist. Going back to what you said about listening, can you give me a story about how you balance from designing for yourself and designing for the client? Because I've seen a lot of designers out there are criticised for creating a, a room design that they would like to live in, but doesn't necessarily fall under what their client was looking for. I would say, <clears throat> if I'm honest, probably 70% of the designs that I do, I wouldn't want to live in because they're not for me. They're not... I feel like they're not enough. I am quite over the top. I mean, I'm not over the top in terms of colour, but I'm over the top in the layering of the textures and the materials, whereas a lot of my clients are not ready for that. That's not what they want. So 70% of my designs, I would want to learn because they're not enough for me, but they are perfect for the client. And then I dial up the areas that they love. If they love deep, rich textures, then that's what we add in. And I think it's quite sad when you see especially established designers that have made their name in the interior design world, just rinsing and repeating the same thing, because I really feel like, again, have you listened to what the client wants? On the flip side of that, clients will go to particular designers because they want that look. For example, Studio McGee, what they do is amazing. It's an incredible, beautiful, serene, peaceful place. But those designs are very, very similar one after the other. As an up-and-coming designer, when you were starting out, what were the obstacles that you faced? Initially, it was finding clients and finding people to trust your vision. And that's why I think it's great if you start off with friends and family, because they trust you because they love you. <laughs> they don't have a choice. Instagram came around and I started using it in 2017. Well, it's no surprise that's an image-based platform. So that's why it suits you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I actually really love Pinterest. And in the last six months, I haven't put a lot of effort into that. So I need to revisit that and potentially buddy up with a brand. If you know of somebody who's got a kitchen showroom or your friend makes fabric, you know, so how about we go into this together and we design a room together? So we're coming to the last question now. It is, what was it like sitting down with your first paying client? Oh, gosh. Think back. Do you know what? It was amazing. I was so excited. I wasn't nervous because I thought, I just, I'm just happy to be here. Do you know what I mean? I'm just happy to be in the room, hon. You don't even have to pay me. Um, and I think that's where I've always come from. I love 
absolutely love going to all my client visits, sitting down with my customers, you know, and listening to what they've got to say and working through viable solutions. There's nothing better than when you come out and you're like, actually, yeah, I can, I can really help them. And again, we're very honest. If we can't make it work, we sort of say, look, it's not going to work um, in terms of what you're looking to do or you don't have the budget for this. That's a really big conversation we're having at the moment around the cost of products and materials increasing. We'd say to clients, you're much better off just doing one room properly than try and dilute that budget over three or four, four different rooms. Okay, well, I think you've answered most of my questions for tonight. Thank you so much. It's been so much fun. I hope you've enjoyed this first series of the podcast. You can find me at emmamerrystyling.com. We are also on Instagram at emma.merry.styling. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Bye.